Here is Mary's canticle, Mary's song, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you'll want to have it in front of you, uh, either on your phone or um, if you're hard copy. Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, so this is Mary speaking, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant, talking about herself. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So she's turning here from herself, right, to others, the people. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. And he has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Here you have this promise. She goes from saying, I will forever now be special. And of course, we just sang Ave Maria. So yeah, 2,000 years later, she's still special. And then she turns to all people and then she goes to the nation of Israel. And it's all coming, all those promises are all coming true for her as she's pregnant with Jesus. If we want to get Christmas right, then we have to get Mary's prophetic song just right. We've got to get the central reason for the advent of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. He will come and he'll bring down the powerful and raise up the beat down. He's going to come, and things are going to be turned over. Finally, the people of God will be vindicated. Finally, the faithful, the true people of God, the true people of God, the world will be put right for them. But to get to this, we've got to get the backstory in, and you're going to have to go backwards there in Luke chapter 1, really back to last Sunday when we were talking about Zechariah. Zechariah last Sunday, and you go back to Luke, right at the beginning, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, 6, and 7 there. And here's what we find out, backstory time. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Just footnote, Aaron, right, is the tribe of the priests. So Elizabeth and Zechariah are of great lineage. Pick it back up in verse 6. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. That's a big deal. They followed all the law. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Now, does this sound familiar? It's supposed to sound familiar. This is super easy familiar. Sounds just like the famous patriarchs and matriarchs of old, all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, who could not have children, Isaac and Rebekah, who could not have children, Jacob and Rebecca, Rachel, who could not have children, Hannah, who could not have a child, the mother of Samuel the prophet, 
The Jewish typology of barren woman, barren women is paramount to faith in God. It is a key typology in the Bible. Anyone reading Luke's gospel in the first century knows the stories of, story of the Jews. And they, they really are, the Jewish people really are like the fiddler on the roof. You know, the, the whole idea of a displaced people trying to squeak out a little tune while precariously balanced on a scary rooftop. As, as tenuous as that is. Barren matriarchs are key to the Jews' long story. Tentative is the journey. Children are not taken for granted. The whole idea as a people that represent all of humanity says that life is tenuous. It's fragile. There are no guarantees in life. Nothing comes easy. And when it does, we praise God. What's the old line about the Jews? They're just like everybody else, just more so. Zechariah's story in Luke fills in like this. Zechariah's fulfilling his tribal priestly, if you read on there in the beginning of Luke. He's fulfilling his tribal priestly duty, which they were on a schedule, and it was his turn to go into the sanctuary. He was just a, a normal guy. He wasn't a professional priest or anything like that, and he's just doing his duty, serving in the sanctuary. And he's offering incense in the temple while the whole assembly of people during the service are outside. There's different levels in the temple, right? There's the Holy of Holies, and then there's an outer court, and then there's a, the pagan's court and so forth. Um, and so they're outside then, and they're praying uh, to God. And in, while Zechariah is in there alone, an angel appears to him and tells him that his prayer has been heard by God. Your wife Elizabeth, it says, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. The angel says, verse 13, John will be very special, the angel says, a prophetic leader coming before the Messiah. He will be a prophet. He will lead the way. He will call the people back to repentance. He's going to be that special. And then Zechariah says to the angel, here's the moment for Zechariah, how can I know that this will happen? For I'm an old man and my wife is getting on in years being polite, verse 18. And then Gabriel says, I am Gabriel and I stand before the presence of God. Because you don't believe my words, you'll become mute and unable to speak these, that these things until these things occur. Uh-oh. Really, Zechariah, you've heard all these stories, Abraham, Sarah, and right on down. Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, you've heard all these stories since, since you were a child. You know this typology of barren women and then God showing up, right? And the promise being fulfilled and carried forward. You know this. You know God always uses barren women. God always uses the vulnerable, the lowly, the innocent. And in a modern, unpopular term, he uses subjugated women. Yes, Zechariah, you should have known better. You should have known better. How can you doubt Gabriel? You should have known better, Zechariah. This is your people's storyline. This is the story for all of humanity. At least from the Bible's worldview, where it flips everything over, where those that are the least become the greatest, and the powerful 
not so much. Now, when Mary appears to have the same doubts as Zechariah, because if you know this first chapter in Luke, then you're like, hey, wait a second. And it can be a real puzzlement. You can be like, Mary has the same kind of a question, doesn't she? She has the same doubt as Zechariah. How can this be, she says in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? You know, and if you're just reading on face value, it sounds like Zechariah and Mary's doubt is exactly the same. How's this going to happen? It seems impossible, both say. How will Elizabeth give birth? How will Mary give birth? Answer. The angel says to Mary, nothing's impossible with God. You should have known better, Zechariah. But Mary, sweet, innocent Mary, who's probably a teenager, you know. Nothing's impossible with God, Mary. And she replies, okay, here I am, servant of the Lord. Okay, I'll do as you say. (laughs) If uh, doubt is the ants and the pants of faith, then what exactly is faith? That's what we're chewing on this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. It's a real cut and dry sort of straight ahead answer. It makes sense. It's things not seen. If you've seen it, you don't need any faith. It takes a certain amount of innocence to have faith in God. Now, those that are cynical about this thing say it takes a little bit of blind faith or stupidity, but it's not, doesn't have to really go there. It takes a certain amount of innocence to have faith in God, and Mary sees herself as a servant of God. Of course, she will do what God asks, and Zechariah, on the other hand, he's had too many years, too much mileage, too much life experience. He's seen a lot of things in life. Zechariah knows life is full of disappointments, It's more gray than black and white. Don't trust others, he thinks. People are going to let you down. Things don't work out. In a sense, he's saying, I don't really trust God. Because I know better because I have life experience. The difference between Mary and Zechariah's faith is this. Mary knows that there's a God and that's all she needs. Okay, I'll do as you say. I'm your servant. Zechariah knows there's a God, but then he also knows life. I mean, I know at least he knows old men and women don't have kids. And he knows that the Jews have been let down for centuries. And his life experience outweighs his faith. And he trusts in his own wisdom. And in short, he's lost his trust in God, but not Mary. Gabriel tells Zechariah, Zechariah, Let's just let you bake on this. Let's just let you think on this until your son's born. So we're just going to give you the silent treatment. You'll be struck dumb, unable to speak. We'll just let you chew on this for a few months. As Henry Nouwen says so famously, solitude is the furnace of transformation. And believe me, Zechariah becomes transformed. God's prescription for faith is solitude and silence, and it still holds true for us today. If you're trying to make a decision in your life, solitude and silence is your first place you need to go. You need to get away from it. And I wonder, are you and I people of faith? Are we people of faith? Do we have faith? 
Are we like Mary or are we like Zechariah? Sometimes, sometimes it takes a deep loss for us to find our faith. Sometimes it takes a tragedy. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be, but sometimes that's just what it is. I remember when I was 19 years old, and one Saturday I drove home from Lawrence, from college, to our family's fall cookout. And there on the door was a note, go to the hospital, your father's had a heart attack. He didn't have a heart attack, he had a massive stroke, an aneurysm. He didn't die, he should have died. He was never the same, paralyzed on one side for the rest of his life. I knew him longer as a paralyzed invalid than I knew him well. And I went back to school and it was just all torn up. My life was falling apart and I liked to camp and so I just did the most natural thing that a 19 year old does. I packed up all my stuff, my sleeping bag, ran by Food for Less or some grocery store like that and headed out to Clinton Lake to an old campsite that we would go out to by myself. And there that night in the cold December around a fire, I prayed out loud to God. I mean, you call it prayer technically, but what it really was was just a long, long rant until I'd got it all out. I felt like I was freaking out and yelling at God, and I'd never rejected God. I never have rejected God. I don't know what it is about me. I, I never really say, like, God, I don't believe in you because things aren't turning out. I've never done that. Maybe it was because of that night as a 19-year-old that that was set in my mind. I, I never got that. I never went there to reject the whole thing, even though everything was turned upside down. And as a young man, I felt like I grew into an old man overnight. At 19 years old, I became like Job, old Job. Yet, though you slay me, still will I cling to you. Yet, though you slay me, still I will cling to you. The Jews had this down. God, yet, though you slay me, I will cling to you. That's like the essence of faith. It's an argument with God. It's a debate. It's a rant. You know, I, I think we all have three or four or five defining stories and events in our lives. Every one of us, your whole life. Now, I haven't been around enough years. Maybe it's six or seven events. But we have three or four defining stories in our lives, these events that happen. And these stories are moments usually of the negative. They're of a loss. Incredibly shocking, devastating, unimaginable loss. Every now and then, one of them might be something spectacular, like the night I proposed to my, to my, to my girlfriend, Laurie. And she said yes, which was kind of the amazing part. Like, I, that was a positive. But most of the time, these defining moments that define our relationship with God and with the world and with others are incredibly moments, incredible moments of loss. These defining things that happen to us. Faith is this moment where you get a new God. You realize that, right? As a Christian, I heard about a couple here lately who just rejected. They've been Christians. They'd worked in a church and everything, and they just rejected the whole thing. They basically deconverted. I'm like, I think probably they just needed a new God, one that they could argue with, one that kind of fit the world around them better. 
it's got to grow and it's got to expand our, our idea of God, our relationship. Faith is that moment where you get a new God. You get a new you is actually what's going on. God doesn't change as much as we just get the perspective that God must be bigger than my circumstances. And then we still cling to God. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of hopes, a conviction about things unseen. If we knew the outcome, then it isn't faith. If we want to know what's going to happen, that just makes us God. And that job's already taken. We don't get that. Zechariah should have known better. He had all the background, all the knowledge. He's a priest. He should have had it. And he didn't accept it. So he gets a silent treatment. And that brought him back to faith. That brought him back to faith. Because then when his son's born and they're going to name him, and he says, his name's going to be John. That's his first words. Just like the angel Gabriel told him. So are we people of faith? The, the correct answer is like, meh. That's the right answer. Anything else is not truthful. Someone we care deeply about is in the hospital. Our faith in God is in God, and we can't assume the outcome. Assurance in Jesus' promise of the resurrection is what we can be sure of. That's the one certitude. We cling to God, not our assumptions about the future. We live just in that moment, as any of us have done, sitting in the hospital waiting room or in the ER. It's just that moment. It's very, very small. Yeah, you pray for healing. You plead your heart's desire. You're desperate. But you don't confuse your heart's desire with, I believe, I don't believe in God or something like that. But Mary, you just say, here I am serving the Lord. Here I am. I'm just right here. I'm just right here right now. And that's a defining moment in life. Brothers and sisters, if faith were easy, then we wouldn't need a relationship with God. <laughs> All we'd need is just a, a lamp with a genie inside. And that's not the God of the Bible. It might be somebody else's kind of religion or faith, but it's not the Bible. This relationship is why, the, why I love the God of the Bible. There's no other faith like Christianity. And as I've told you guys uh, many times when we sit around and talk about it, in part of my research in uh, working on things, you realize that God, the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity, is an attachable figure. Just like you attach, like a duckling attaches to a mother goose or duck, and just like children attach to their parent. God, the God of the, and this is by secular people, by the way, researchers, God of the Bible is an attachable figure. In other words, that is a relationship. A relationship. No other faith, no other religion has that same attachment. None. And here you have it. Here you have it. The Bible takes young, powerless women and makes them heroines and role models for all of human civilization. Christianity flips the world upside down. And so then we come to a table here in just a moment. 
And there in the upper room, Jesus is surrounded by men who believe that Jesus is going to magically somehow overthrow the Roman Empire and that perhaps these multitudes of angels are going to come and warriors and they're going to throw out the Roman Empire and throw out Caesar. And then Israel's become, going to become all-powerful, basically become an empire itself. And they'll teach the world what's right. And then, and then, much to the disciples' surprise, instead of becoming a powerful army and an empire, they all run and scatter because Jesus goes to a cross and is nailed up like a, like a criminal and crucified. And that's what really makes the world right. Just like Mary being a nobody, Jesus the Savior looks like a nobody, just a common criminal. And then there on the cross, here comes Jesus' mother, Mary. Mother Mary comes, and he goes to, she goes to her crucified son and clings to him. Mary is our role model. Even then she has faith. When all the disciples who had walked for several years with Jesus fled and hid. Mary is simply spectacular. She has the faith of a mother. Understand the symbols of bread and wine. They're just common bread and common juice. Just as common as Mary. <laughs> but with unfathomable meaning, unflappable faith. This is the people of God and all of us Marys and all of us Zacharias and we all fit the bill and we all fulfill both of them. And all of us become just common people in a spectacular way. So don't miss the symbolism of the bread and the wine. It's not just a dry ritual. It's a moment of redefining who you are, who you belong to. And it is a moment, a moment of Faith. Amen.